Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about export illegals to D.C. plan is working, Biden's climate change emergency farce, Biden's election theft plan foiled, and whose side is America on? And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. So yesterday on the show, we had a wonderful guest named Wade Miller, and he is a longtime friend, but he's also a really well-informed um, political analyst in Washington, D.C. He's formerly worked for the Heritage Foundation, analyzing legislation uh, of all kinds and helping understand how it's going, who's whether it's moving through Congress or not. He's also been uh, a chief of staff for one of the most prominent conservative congressmen in Washington, D.C., Chip Roy. Uh, he also worked for Ted Cruz, our uh, U.S. senator from the great state of Texas. So he's really well-versed. And one thing, what we got on to talking about yesterday to a, we had several issues, but one had to do uh, with what Governor Abbott is doing in Texas, uh, which had to do with the border plan he has announced, where he is essentially kind of um, giving the appearance of, though, of, of firming up the border and of taking action to seize people uh, who enter America illegally. And, um, and I think people assume that means and putting him back over the border. All his plan is is actually to get the illegals uh, that are arrested here and take them back to Border Patrol, the federal agents at the U.S. border, who then in turn uh, process them and release them into the interior, meaning his plan doesn't really do much. But also, Governor Abbott did do a plan that did have some kind of surprising, and I think on my show I said I wasn't too impressed with it to start with, but Governor um, Abbott here in Texas had decided that instead of just catching people here, illegals here, and trying to figure out what to do with them, he would put them on a bus to Washington, D.C. And so he did. And so he ended up with a um, several times sending buses, loads of people um, up to Washington, D.C., illegal aliens, and dropping them off, I think some in Washington and some in New York. And so what has happened is the border mess problem, or the results of the border mess problem, to a certain degree has been shifted up uh, to the East Coast, and in particular, of course, to Washington, D.C., which um, I find entertaining because they won't do anything about securing the border. But now there has been a, um, I, I want to find the right document to read you this funny quote, but anyway, um, he is, um, uh, the because of Governor Abbott's order, um, you now have the uh, Washington, D.C. officials complaining uh, that they have their homeless shelters overwhelmed. They have people on the streets who are literally being dropped off of buses who are illegal aliens that the uh, Biden administration was perfectly happy leaving in Texas or wandering around any one of the four border states um, where they don't enforce the border, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, just kind of let they, they don't enforce it. And so this is kind of getting a taste of what they are, they, the Biden administration is causing the people of Texas and the other border states to feel. So complaints are coming in. Cities swarm as asylum seekers plead for aid. And this is part of the, um, what, what is occurring in Washington. You have these people who are, um, and actually, Governor Ducey in Arizona is doing the same thing. So you have two border state governors, Texas and Arizona, uh, shipping legal aliens on buses up to Washington, just let them go. So now you have uh, this, these two cities, uh, Washington and apparently New York, swarming with um, asylum seekers who didn't get processed down here because they don't follow our procedures. They just break into America. And you've had the Biden administration unwilling to do anything about it. So the reason I criticize that plan previously is, it's kind of like what we claim that Biden is doing. Biden, they get people over the border, load them on buses, send them around. We don't know where they really get off. We don't know where they go. They're just released into our interior. So it was kind of like Abbott was doing a, Governor Abbott doing a slightly more sophisticated form of what Biden already does with border people. 
but there has been a good consequence, a good um, outcome in that the people in Washington are complaining uh, about it. And there was a um, New York City Mayor, um, Eric Adams, made a plea on Tuesday. He said his city has had more than 2,800 asylum seekers entering homeless shelters in recent weeks. So he, New York Mayor Eric Adams, we're calling the federal government to partner with New York City as we help asylum seekers navigate the process and provide financial and technical resources. So, you know, he's basically going to Washington saying, help me here. I, I can't take care of these people. Uh, the District of Columbia also asking for help. Uh, the city's representative to Congress. This is D.C.'s representative to Congress. Even though D.C. isn't a state, they still have a delegate representative to Congress, uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, is also announcing that she's um, proposing emergency spending legislation to help reimburse the district for handling, as she calls them, the newcomers. As a funny little side note, Eleanor Holmes Norton was a law professor of mine at Georgetown years ago. She taught, I think she taught negotiations. Anyway, um, I had her for a professor years ago. But in any case, Back to um, where we are now. And so even though I think that the border situation is very, very serious, and I think that the failure of the Biden administration to actually enforce our border is almost unspeakably, uh, it's, it's on the level of treasonous. It's certainly at the level of failing uh, your duty as the commander in chief as the President of the United States to enforce America's borders. And the policies of the Biden administration don't appear to just be that they won't enforce the border. One new iteration, new bit of news that came out is that the Biden administration is actually also, it appears, in the process of firing or removing the immigration judges who are holding illegal immigrants accountable and applying the law. That's actually a complaint now, and it is being directed uh, directly at Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general, who um, is, you know, this, these aren't, the immigration judges are not part of the formal system where we have, you know, in the states are either elected or appointed, and the federal level, uh, they all have to be nominated and go through a process. All the federal judges have to go through that process and get confirmed by the Senate. But these immigration judges are unique in law. They aren't, they don't follow that path, and they are easily removable. And there's a complaint now that uh, Merrick Garland and the Biden administration is removing or firing the judges who actually enforce the law and actually end up requiring some of these people to leave or do whatever the law actually requires. And heaven knows, heaven knows, the last thing the Biden administration wants to have is law and order related to the border. So I've raised this question, this point over and over. I'm not going to stop talking about it until we secure our border. But if you, you know, for a long time, if you live in one of the four border states, border with Mexico states, you understood the problem. And the closer you live to the border, the more you understood. But now we're having the happy residents of New York City and their government and their government infrastructure and their social services are being impacted by this ridiculous open border policy of the Biden administration. And so it's a little bit of um, you know, a taste of their own medicine and a little bit of a reminder to the people in Washington that real people live along the border and they're pretty tired of the failure of the Biden administration to enforce the border. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. I want to turn and talk about Biden's climate change uh, emergency farce. And, you know, it's being announced he hasn't done it yet, or at least last time I saw the news before I left home today, um, the Biden administration is contemplating sending um, or, a, uh, or having an executive order declaring an emergency, a climate change emergency. And, of course, emergency authority, uh, as you, we all watched during COVID, uh, emergency authority legislation exists in every state. And in real emergencies, you know, you have to have the executive branch in states or at the federal government have the power to do something. You don't have to wait until you can reassemble Congress, reassemble legislature. You've got to act in a real emergency. Well, the next stunt out of the Biden administration, they want to declare a climate emergency. And there are a few, and I want to hit a bunch of points about this. I, I will say among my central points is this is an example this is an example of when you let leftists have power, they will do everything they can as fast as they can to take control of as much as they can. Leftism, which in this era in America today, leftism is progressivism, Marxism, socialism, communism. The entire mindset of the, of the anti-American left 
It's always about finding more ways, more excuses, more justifications for seizing power over you, for controlling your life, for taking away your freedom, taking away your God-given rights. And so we've seen the Biden administration already do this in numerous other ways. Uh, we've talked about the loss of freedom of speech, the threats from Department of Homeland Security. If you dare say something that disagrees with the Biden administration on COVID vaccine policy or the legitimacy of the 2020 election, you're called a domestic terrorist. We see the way the January 6th uh, defendants are being treated. But this is really an interesting, this is a, a next stepping up by the Biden administration. If they can declare climate change as an actual emergency, then all sorts of authority is released by the president, including the use of spending of money and the ordering of the use of the federal bureaucracy, federal um, assets and monies to, uh, to deal with the emergency. And I'll start with, and I'm going to come back to a little later in this discussion, to remind you, this is supposed to be things like, oh, I don't know, you know, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, I would say we had an emergency. We had to react in an emergency fashion. We couldn't twiddle our thumbs. We had to do a lot of things to react in an emergency. The same is true at the state level on many times with actual weather emergencies, actual, you know, hurricane, earthquake. I mean, something where there's massive harm and you have, a, you have people in need and you've got to get uh, resources to them, you have to get help to them. This is what emergency uh, is supposed to mean. What is the precipitating emergency in climate change? I mean, it's been bandied about as alarming and dangerous and threatening, you know, since Al Gore wrote his goofy book. And the left, and I don't just mean the Democrat Party in America, I mean leftists around this world and including the globalists and the socialists have seen climate change as just a vehicle to seize power, to collectivize society, to collect power in their own hands, and to take away the freedom of individuals. It is an excuse. It is a tool. Climate change is a tool in the hands of leftists. So ask yourself sincerely, what, what exactly is the emergency? I mean, we had just a couple days ago, we had these two prominent, I mean, truly prominent scientists who finally were out of the grip of their Ivy League institutions, filing a comment to the SEC, and we went over this in the show again, and we're going to talk about it more, uh, but these two prominent scientists, one from MIT, one from Princeton, who submitted a 28-page comment to the SEC in opposition to a new rule the SEC was considering to clobber corporations that want to be listed on the stock exchange with even more requirements related to climate alarmism. And these two professors spelled out in plain English to the SEC and to the world. These are public. These comments are public. They made them public. Those comments included, there is no climate change crisis. There is no climate change crisis. Fossil fuels, we do not need, we have, there's no need at all to reduce or eliminate or even stop the growth of the use of fossil fuels. And there is no emergency, there is no crisis related to the level of CO2 in our environment. In fact, the reducing of the use of fossil fuels and the forced reduction of CO2 in the atmosphere is actually, say these scientists, harmful to the people of the planet Earth. And this is a 28-page document, graphs and charts. We went over some, we'll probably go over more. But I'm getting at, at a time when that just occurred, so the climate change alarmism industry, where billions and billions of dollars are under the control of the climate change alarmists, uh, they have that come down the pike. And then they have the Supreme Court decision uh, coming out of West Virginia, in which the court essentially told the EPA, you cannot, under the excuse of the authority of the Clean Air Act, decide, as the EPA had done, that the coal industry must be eliminated saying essentially to these bureaucratic, you know, power-hungry, climate-alarmist zealots, you cannot destroy an industry, you can't choose to do that, at least without having congressional, not just approval, Congress has to pass this, Congress has to look at the evidence. So we have two pretty big challenges to the power of the bureaucratic state in America, which uh, on the American left that just uses climate to excuse all power-grabbing they've always wanted to do anyway. Supreme Court said, can't do that, EPA, got to go back to Congress, they've got to pass this. And you understand, people in Congress, they don't want to have to pass this kind of legislation. 
because they know they will lose their jobs. They'll get voted out because it's so extreme, so absurd, so ridiculous, so unjustified, so unnecessary that they don't dare vote for it. But they're perfectly happy the Supreme Court would back them or the bureaucracies that are totally unaccountable to the people put rules like this in place. So now let's get back to uh, what we have the um, stuntmeister uh, in Biden's administration doing on this climate emergency. I sent to the very happy um, Joe. I hope he's happy. I think he's happy. Um, he is here uh, working with um, working my, as my producer today. I sent a bunch of clips. Uh, the first one, I think I called. Yeah, this is clip one. And this is our happy Depart Biden Transportation Secretary Put uh, Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg, and what he is saying, essentially, he's addressing the question, you know, it's going to, if you're going to really, uh, you know, how painful the high gas prices are to the average citizen, here's what the Department of Transportation Secretary had to say. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. Okay, see, what he's saying, let me put this in plain English. The climate change zealot, alarmist zealots, they do not care how much people suffer. They do not care. The point being made in the question to him was, you know, the gas prices are so high, and the gas prices are high. Do not let the Biden administration do, uh, delude you or fool you. They're high because of Biden administration policies. They're high because they tamped down. In fact, they just announced the Biden administration is not going to authorize any new drilling, any new drilling, any new expansion of the fossil fuels industry. They announced that. So, you know, fossil fuels, the prices are being driven up by a whole series of policies, getting rid of the pipeline, refusing to allow exploration. You know, we have enough just in one little segment of southwest, uh, so the southwestern U.S. to produce enough gasoline for American energy for 200 years. You know that? 200 years. And yet you have them making gasoline unaffordably high price, and so people can't afford to buy gas. Next little segment. Uh, let me see. That was, yeah. This is a clip two. Same hearing. This gentleman speaking, uh, who I really, I've never met him, but I love all his um, postings and um, writings, but Representative Thomas Massey, and he's basically pointing out, you know, how hard it is for the American citizen to already for, to pay for the air conditioning, to pay for things that cost money. So he's pointing out all this electric car stuff that you're pushing, you're trying to push on the American people. What's that going to do? Let's play that clip too. The average uh, household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it will well, let be me help less you. Let me help you overall. with that first before we go on, because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be so if we reach the goal by 2030 that Biden has of a 50 percent adoption instead of 100 percent adoption, that means the average household would use twice as much electricity charging one of their cars as they would use for all of the air conditioning that they use for the entire year. Again, elected officials, they do have responsibility to get a big picture, to pass laws, they, they can't, I mean, they have to look at all the facts, but climate change as a, a climate change alarmism as spread as gospel truth for decades over this, uh, over this country, around the world, has resulted in an arrogance in the policymakers. And if you're hearing that hammering, we actually are doing this show uh, in a lovely new development down here where I guess there's a little bit of construction next door. Anyway, so the Biden administration uh, is, as many leftists are, oblivious to the reality of how much their policies will harm the average person. I mean, he's pointing out people already pay an enormous portion of their money to, uh, in the form of just paying for air conditioning because they need electricity to make air conditioning run in this sweltering summer. And, and now you, Mr. Uh, Transportation Secretary, you're okay with the idea that these people are going to end up with a, a much higher 
electric price to plug in their cars, which you're trying to get them to buy. So, I mean, he's he's trying to bring a reality check or a response from this guy who's just blissfully, you know, uh, Buttigieg is blissfully blathering away about how great it all be. We'll get rid of fossil fuels. And the plan the Biden administration has, as many scientists have pointed out, is absurd and foolish and unattainable. But they keep pressing on. They keep pressing on. So now we're going to get this emergency action thing in a moment. But there's another clip. I mean, the, the I, I want to play these because I really want to make the point what is so wrong and what we have to get back to in this country, we've had this climate change, alarmism, zealotry, absurdity pressed as gospel truth for so long in this country that we don't even have the conversation, do we really need to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere? Do we really need to stop or drastically halt or, or reduce the amount of fossil fuels being used? Those questions, I mean, as I say them out loud, you will hear, you'd hear plenty of people say, well, of course, we're not going to discuss that anymore. Of course, we have to reduce CO2. Of course, we have to stop fossil fuels. The, they don't even, no one who's pushing the climate alarmism, zealotry, absurdity, no one ever has to justify what they're saying. No one ever has to go back and respond to actual scientists who are trying to report things and, and make an argument to the SEC. And these scientists, by the way, who wrote that, the reason they're able to do that is because they're no longer employed by these hoity-toit universities that where they would be driven out were they ever to challenge climate change, which is, has become a religion on the left, the climate change religion, the gospel truth of all things. These people have who are highly credentialed. When you're, It's exhausting to read their resumes, all the things they've done. And yet they're saying there's no reason to reduce fossil fuels, no reason to reduce CO2. In fact, the earth and its inhabitants will be harmed if you do that. That's what they're saying. And yet everything the Biden administration is doing, everything the World Economic Forum, all the leftist powers of the world are doing, they go along, they start from the absolutely unquestionable premise that, you know, climate change is about to kill us all, so we're justified in anything we do to you. So next one, I want to play a few of these. This is a clip three. Uh, this is Biden's energy advisor, Amos Huckstein, Huckstein, I think it is, and who's basically saying we need to stop projects and limit usage to accelerate the transition. They're talking about the transition to completely eliminate fossil fuel and get to where all we have is um, the... Um, you know, electric cars or what they're really heading to is you really aren't going to be able to travel very much at all if you're just an average peasant in this world. Here's him. Here's that guy. So it's about making a choice between what is the short term and the medium term so that we can make sure we have enough oil and gas to support us through the transition. And what are the kind of steps that we don't want the oil and gas industry to take that would have long term consequences when we don't want uh, new major projects that would take 20, 30 years to, to become profitable. So we have to make that differentiation to make sure that the American consumer has what it needs to grow, to gl grow our economy and the global economy, but not take steps and endanger the climate uh, work that we're trying to do to make sure that we're on a better footing to accelerate the transition. Okay, folks, I will tell you that the kind of, I, I only can play, I think, one or two more clips, but I really want to drive home the point. Activists in this country have to start pushing back, not just saying, you know, let's slightly push back the year when you think the deadline is when we have to get, uh, you know, address climate change, or let's slightly, uh, let's give ourselves a little bit of break related to all of what we're going to do um, on, on climate change. You know, let, let's, you know, reduce the number or, or give a little bit of relaxation of the stern goals of the Biden team. We have to get to the question, why is the whole world in a tizzy over the use of fossil fuels and CO2 levels in our environment when you look at, and I keep touting these two people, these two scientists, uh, Lindzen and Happer are their names, two, two incredibly accomplished PhDs who filed this SEC uh, filing uh, just this week. It's not just those two. It is that other climatologists over the decades, ever since Al Gore came along and wrote his hysteria book, anyone who ever challenges climate change orthodoxy is driven out of universities, 
cannot become the recipient of any federal grants, the billions, B as in boy, billions of dollars that flow to the climate change hysteria industry uh, go on and on. And, it, and so, and yet despite that, there have been people more and more speaking up, challenging the premise, idea, the, the foundational premise of the climate change alarmism that fossil fuels must be eliminated, must be reduced and then eliminated, and that CO2 in the environment is dangerous. We have to, as conservatives, as activists, and frankly, people in Washington, need to challenge the very fundamental premise. Why is it we're so worried about these? Where is the science? And, and make the people pushing these policies actually address the uh, foundational claims on which they're uh, acting. So one more, uh, this is John Kerry, um, who is Biden's climate czar, who I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I am telling you, this guy flies around the world in a private jet and, and burns more, I mean, adds more CO2 to the environment and, and burns more, you know, jet fuel than, than most Americans do in their entire lives, he does in a year. And yet he's the climate czar lecturing everybody else about whether or not you really need to have a car anymore or shouldn't you turn in your car that uses fossil fuel and you'll get yourself a plug-in. And, and I'm just telling you, um, I thought of an analogy today. Just, it's a little bit extreme. I'm going to say it anyway. If you actually thought that adding CO2 to the environment was that dangerous, that lethal, that we're this close to the world burning up, which is what the whole John Kerry ilk of the climate change loonies say, you wouldn't do that. I mean, all of us had in the last couple of years, because of COVID, uh, had, to, had to resort to Zoom meetings for everything. We had to have Zoom meetings, and I, I, I've done this. Zoom meetings, Skype calls, they actually work internationally. Do you know that? They work internationally. So you could, none of this flying has to happen. I mean, there's all this, well, you know, we're, we're uh, really very senior officials. We have to shake hands. But no, they don't. If they really thought it was that dangerous, they wouldn't do what they do. It's like, and here's my analogy. It's like if you picked up, if you happen to locate, you know, an unexploded ordinance uh, found from a leftover war or some other instance where you found a, a, a truly dangerous, uh, you know, possibly explosive, uh, you know, un, uh, an or a, a bomb or something that hadn't yet blown up, you wouldn't pick it up and carry it around. You would back off, call the authorities, and, and take care of it. You wouldn't handle it. You wouldn't because you understand how eminently dangerous it could be. While the climate zealots, the alarmist zealots, are trying to say climate change is going to kill us all, but when it comes down to whether they should you know, attend a Zoom meeting, have a Skype call, or fly, jet around the world, and talk to all the other uber-wealthy jet-setter, private jet-owner types, they're all willing to do that. I'm telling you, they don't believe in the alarmism they say they do. They, it is an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. It is a, a, a path forward for people who want to have a cause, who want to look around among the peers, their other friends who are on the same page as they are and view themselves as morally superior to the billions of peasants in the world who need to be told you can't really own your car anymore. You can't drive a fossil fuel using car. You have to get an electric car. We don't care if you can't afford an electric car, which are far more expensive than regular cars, and you can't afford to charge your electric car. They, they are fine making rules to everybody else and doesn't apply to them, which reveals not just hypocrisy, but actually, I truly believe, they don't even believe the extremism that they tout all the time. I'll very quickly jump in and tell us for our radio listeners, you're going to go off to a break at 30 minutes past the hour for a three-minute break. You're listening to Debbie Georgiatis. My show is America Can We Talk. The website is americacanwetalk.org. Come back after a three-minute break because I'll be right here talking to you. For everybody else, I do want to continue on the subject of this uh, climate change emergency because what they're going to do, and I want to make analogy to something else Biden did recently, but what they're going to do is declare a climate change emergency or, or they, that, I mean, it was first announced he was that uh, Biden was supposedly going to announce it today, today, and now they're saying, no, he's going to wait a little longer. But 
When you have emergency authority, you can take all sorts of actions that you cannot take if you have to go through the tedious process of getting something through Congress. Because Congress is made up of people who have to respond to their constituents. And people in Congress are much more easy for their have their constituents organized, say, don't you dare vote for this, don't vote this, don't vote for that. So it, they, they don't want to have to vote on this. They don't want to have to deal with it. But Biden can, once he, if he were to declare this emergency, he's got uh, resources at his disposal, money at his disposal. He has federal agencies, you know, under his control. The entire massive, massive behemoth, massive bureaucracy of Washington under his control. All those agencies, and 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 he can use them in this emergency to turn everything to whatever he defines the emergency requires them to do. He's kind of turning himself into a king. And this idea that, well, the agencies will just be looking out for all of us. Don't worry. They'll just be looking out for all of us. They will be looking out to find ways to spend the money the federal government says they get to have and everything about the climate change agenda. Everything about it is to make life more expensive for corporations, more difficult for corporations, more difficult for individuals. If you wake up one day and you realize the government has priced you out of your home because you can't own your fossil fuel burning car anymore and they're requiring you to have an electric car, but you can't afford to charge your electric car because you have to pay your air conditioning bill and your other bills, I mean, you suddenly realize all this climate change issue uh, it is people it is about freedom it has a massive massive impact on the freedom of the individual the life of the individual many policies proposed in the obama era had to do with under the under the excuse of the justification of climate change uh, controlling where you live trying to have planned communities trying to discourage home ownership discourage suburb development and the development of single family homes because you know they're more inefficient that's more electricity burn per unit than if you had people forced into cloistered you know, multi-family units or very, very large buildings like you see in the Soviet Union and North Korea and in China, where people are forced to live in very, very close, close quarters in small little um, housing units. And people being forced into those, they probably do expend less CO2. They probably have a smaller CO2 imprint. But I'm telling you, the, the, the end, there is no end. There is no end to the mischief and mischief is too nice a word. The tyranny the Biden administration can come up with once they have justified climate change as an emergency and the use of federal dollars. And I want to hit an analogy. I told you yesterday, I think, about the 30 by 30 thing, which Biden's coming down. That's coming down the pike, the idea that they get to, they get to have a, a land grab that Biden, in his very first couple weeks in Washington, um, and part of an executive order said that the federal government was going to essentially seize 30% of all of the land and water in America and bring it under the control and ownership of the federal government by the year 2030. That's what 3030, 30 by 30 is. And they're doing it. They're, they're, they're marching on. And so, uh, I mean, that's just one little element. But the way in which regulations impact your home, what kind of, where you're allowed to set your temperature in your home, all of this is going to be controlled by the federal government. And all of it, I go back to being uh, mandated and justified under the pretension that climate change is, you know, man-caused, anthropogenic, man-caused, and, uh, you know, nearly fatal, massive, alarming climate change is about to kill us all, so everybody else just better surrender. I I'm, I'm telling you, people, there's just no end to what they can do with this. Um, I want to make an analogy that was kind of interesting. I, I talked to you um, uh, last week, I think it was. Oh, wait, one more thing to quickly mention on that. Um, so by, it was, I want to tell you who said this, because I mentioned there was a rule uh, announcement by Biden's energy security official, who was, uh, who is his senior uh, energy advisor, Amos Hochstein, in charge of U.S. energy security, said um, after a trip to Saudi Arabia um, that the administration cannot accept this administration cannot accept or approve any long-term oil and gas development that undermines the urgency of the crisis they are exploiting. And so, basically, he's, he's, gonna say, he's saying we're going to keep the oil and gas industry in a perpetual state of shortage. 
overcapacity and expense, allowing the transition to windmills and solar to become urgent. They're creating the crisis by driving up prices so people, they think, will be begging for windmills and solar. And I have to tell you what's happening in Texas. You maybe, if, you're, if you don't live here, you know, it's a sweltering heat wave, not just here, but many places in America. It's been over 100 for days on end. It's really, really hot. And, and so you think, well, this is a good opportunity for solar energy. And it is. We have a lot of sun, probably gathering solar energy. It's not even a, an iota of the percentage of the, of the actual energy consumption in Texas. But at the same time, with this great heat we've had, we've had no wind. So all those windmills, all that, oh, but wind power, don't worry, wind energy doesn't happen. And so I, I'm just telling you that we have the fossil fuels you've been using and the traditional sources of energy are vital to make life livable in Texas and everywhere else. And, and this is why I get so alarmed and, and because I think that the Biden, the uh, energy extremists, the, the uh, climate change extremists, if they could have their way, they really wouldn't care how miserable you are. They really wouldn't care if you couldn't travel anymore. They really wouldn't care if you couldn't afford to own a car. They are so down, whether they truly believe it and they are just, you know, mesmerized and hypnotized by this climate alarmism, or they recognize it as a vehicle to power, and there's probably some of both, and most people, and most of these people, uh, you know, you end up with a real problem. I want to tell you something, as an analogy, something that happened, um, but I guess I'm kind of getting to my next topic. I just want to urge you, I'm going to, as soon as Biden announces any uh, climate emergency, for which I would again argue, I would say, if, if Biden dares to do this, I think there needs to be litigation coming out of Congress, perhaps orchestrated at the state level, by state legislatures, by state governors, by attorneys general, challenging the premise that there is any, any climate change emergency justifying the announcement of a climate, uh, you know, a, a, an emergency declaration. This national climate emergency is a, you know, it's just an excuse to take control and there needs to be litigation right away. Litigation challenging the president, the administration, where's the emergency? And, and how do you respond to the science that says we don't really need to be fighting against fossil fuels? It's got to be a challenge because if you're going to let this administration understand how leftists function, all they're ever thinking about is generating more chaos, creating more emergencies, and then using those emergencies to expand their power. This is the playbook of leftism since time began. Create an emergency, create chaos and fear around it, get the citizens worked up into a tizzy, and then, because you've got them all worried, seize power, expand your power, announce new programs, and if we let this go, if we say, well, but Biden really, he really does think there's a climate emergency, there will be no end. There'll be no end to the emergencies, uh, much as the government used COVID as an emergency. They use it as a, as a alarmist emergency to take away freedom, shut down industry, shut you down in your home, mandate a vaccine which millions did not want to take and millions have not taken, but to mandate control over your health care and tell you you don't get to decide any more about your personal health. The government decides for you or you lose your freedom. This is what resulted from the emergency mindset that emerged during COVID. I'm going to go back to something, and we're going to turn to my next topic here. I, I called up Biden's election theft plan foil. I mentioned to you the other day, there was a brilliant article by Molly Hemingway at The Federalist, and she was talking about how, the, and it's, it's akin to or similar to what we've just been talking about um, with the, um, uh, with the uh, what Biden's trying to do about energy. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before we get to that, one more thing. Um, I want to tell you part of what is the effort of the leftists in this whole climate change thing. If you think you don't care, well, I don't really care. Declare an emergency, but they're not going to hurt me. I want to tell you one thing that's going to be part of this that'll just, I mean, it's actually just mind-blowing, which is the continued push, the growing push to force people to stop eating, you know, beef, stop eating cows, chicken, and, and, any, and anything that grows on farms, I mean, any natural food for humankind, cows, beef, chicken. And so part of the effort is to say, well, you know what? We're just going to, um, you know, we're going to eat bugs and you're going to love bugs. We're going to make insects so delicious, so wonderful. You're going to actually want them. And so you think I'm kidding. This is clip five. 
And this is, I, I want to just have you put that up, Mr. Joe. Okay. If you can't read that on your screen, I'll just tell you, it says PBS America. So PBS means your tax dollars at work public broadcasting system, your tax dollars. This is a PBS ad, PBS America, July 18th. Join at Nova PBS as they take a tasty look at insect foods that could benefit our health and our warming planet. Edible Insects premieres tonight at 7.35 p.m. I don't think I'm gonna tune in, folks, but this is the government conditioning you to think that Eating insects is a great idea, and they're going to induce them all sorts of ways. It's not the only one. If you go to clip six, this clip, okay, there you go. That lovely, see, it looks friendly. Someone's holding in hands. Oh, but they're bugs. And this is from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and they are showing someone holding bugs. And you can see uh, at the bottom, they're talking about guidance on sustainable uh, cricket farming. I mean, who, who knew? I mean, why would you have to have a farm with, you know, cows and chickens? You can have crickets. And they're literally talking about urging. This is the UN. And again, a lot of your tax dollars at work pushing on humankind in the name of climate change, eating insects. I think there's one more. Yeah, yeah. Clip seven. This is a beauty. Okay, clip seven. This is a beautiful thing. And this is from the Food Standards of Scotland, FCC, Food Standards of Scotland, and they are talking about the transitional period under the novel food regulations for edible insects in England, Scotland, and Wales. Proposals been developed with input by the from Food Standards Scotland. Today we have launched a consultation on plans to bring capacity, bring to capacity clarity to the law on selling insects for human consumption. We'd like to hear from anyone with an interest in edible insects, particularly trade organizations and food businesses. And this is from the Food Standards Agency, food.gov.uk. So over in the UK, they're pushing this. And I'm gonna make something really clear. I don't care if you love meat or you hate meat, you like steak, you don't like steak. I don't care if people want to eat insects. I mean, if you view it in some poor country as a viable food source. If you think we can't afford to grow, have goats and cows and chickens and other, you know, farm animals. So, you know, we're going to go ahead and learn about developing insects. I am not, as a food source, I'm not against the efforts to do that in order to help people. I am against the notion that they are pushing eating insects because we're all supposed to be afraid of cows. Seriously, we're supposed to be afraid of cows. This is what launched a bit one of the farmer protests, the government saying, and I can't remember if it was in, a, um, in the Netherlands or in uh, Sri Lanka, it was Netherlands, where the government was going to essentially force the farmers in their country to kill off 30% of their livestock in the name of climate change. I'm telling you, this climate change stuff, it, it, it is just this insanity spread around uh, the world. So anyway, uh, understand the food, food thing. I don't care if you you know, for whatever reason you want to eat locusts, knock yourself out. I object to the government pushing the idea we have to stop eating beef, stop eating normal human food. I object to the idea the government's using the climate change excuse to push people to, uh, to transition. Just as we're transitioning away from fossil fuels to electric cars are too expensive for the average person to own and operate. And they, they know this, they know this, and they're pushing it anyway. And we're going to transition from normal food to insect eating. And I object to the use of tax dollars. I don't want to have my tax dollars going to PBS, who in turn, that are in America, in turn, are pushing eating insects. I mean, it's not just revolting, but it's all on a false premise. It's all on a false premise. Anyway, the analogy I wanted to make, now I'm getting my third topic, uh, Biden's election theft plan foiled. I mentioned a few weeks ago, or maybe just last week, but Molly Hemingway had a brilliant piece at the Federalist basically talking about the idea um, that the, uh, the Biden administration had issued an executive order, which it kind of, as many of these do, went under the radar, but the gist of it was they were pushing in this executive order uh, the idea that the... Um, all the federal agencies, and it turns out in this tabulation she did, over 600 federal agencies all got a notice from Biden early on, early on, that they were to be, to make a priority with the tax dollars you pay the government and the government has allotted to these agencies, that those agencies must prioritize voter registration. Agencies that have 
nothing to do with voter registration. Agencies who have an actual job to do, whether it is assisting with the dispensing of uh, federal dollars and, uh, and the Department of Labor, whether it's you know Medicare and Medicaid, all of the federal agencies were required within, I think it was 100 days from the time that Biden or signed the order, they all had to submit a plan to the administration to say how they're going to prioritize pushing voter registration. And of course, let me translate that for into plain English. When they say pushing voter registration, they are talking about fraudulently puffing up the voter rolls of America to include more and more people whose votes can then be cast fraudulently during an election, either, either uh, by the use of the mail-in ballot scam that we went through the last election cycle that was revealed in 2000 mules. Yeah, that scam going on of mail-in ballots being used. And, oh, you can find millions of voters on the rolls who have, they aren't real. They're not someone who's never going to vote, someone who moved away 10 years ago. All the reasons the voter rolls are, are puffed up and they go back down after every election. We've had Dr. Douglas Frank on the show going through the data, pointing this out to you, that in state after state, he can show the pattern. Voter roll registration goes up in states where just before an election, you think, oh, good, people are getting excited, they want to vote. And then as soon as elections are over, the numbers go down because those voters didn't exist. There is a, it's like a bank account of voters that the people who steal elections can use when the voter rolls are filled with non-existent voters. And this I'm telling you is I'm sure what the Biden scheme is all about. Get more and more people in there. There's no reason the Department of Labor and all these other agencies involved in this scam should have should be spending any tax dollars, any of the time of their staff, any of the resources they have on encouraging people to vote, to register to vote. It is a vote is a fraudulent vote operation from the Biden administration to start. And so this is, again, election takeover, um, you know, coming out of the Biden administration. But the great thing that happened was um, somebody filed a lawsuit, and I actually, I meant to see who the uh, moving party was. Oh, actually, the moving party was the Foundation for Government Accountability. The Foundation for Government Accountability. And they asked the Biden administration for the documents, the communication. What did you tell these agencies when you want them to scurry around and find more voters? What did you tell them? You know, where are the communications? You know, the document discovery is very common. And, the, and you know, you, you ask for documents, you define what they are, you may fuss in front of the judge about which documents are relevant or not. But they basically said, we want to see the documents. We want to see what you told these agencies, what they should be doing with all this federal um, you know, push that you're putting on them to register voters. So the Biden administration's first answer was, well, we, you know, it's going to, a great amount of time will be wasted. Great, it's very, very onerous in these, these uh, agencies um, to come up with that, those documents. So, so we'll do it um, after, we'll do it after the, um, the uh, election. Well, we'll do it in 2023. The Biden team actually had the audacity to make that argument to the court. Yeah, and, and well, as soon as 2023 comes along, then we'll show you, you know, all these documents we're thinking about. And fortunately for sanity, the government said, the judge said no, actually, and gave them a deadline very soon, far before the November elections. So the Biden administration, they'll probably appeal that ruling, but the Biden administration is being told, you have to produce the election takeover documents and your entire coordinated effort to engage in the federal takeover of elections, you have to produce those in this piece of litigation. So this is the Biden administration being held accountable by some judge. Um, so the judge basically granted discovery in this whole social media collusion thing. It's beautiful. That was another example from yesterday's show, judge ordering uh, the Biden administration to produce documents. So this is a good thing. There's some courts taking some look at what the... Um, um, at the Biden, Biden administration, what they're doing. Okay, one last story for today. I put whose side is America on? And just very quickly, it's a small story, but it's really, really fun. Uh, and that is that, you know, around this country, we've had many, many elections where we have um, President, former President Trump endorsing somebody. And, you know, this is very common. Elected officials, former officials will endorse somebody uh, in a primary or a general. And, and so, and President Trump has been endorsing people who more or less stand with him or his MAGA agenda. So what happened in the state of Maryland, uh, there's a guy, a state delegate named Dan Cox, Dan Cox, and he was running for the Republican gubernatorial nomination in Maryland. So he's running for governor, Republican side, Dan Cox, and he emerged victorious, meaning he won, and the other 
GOP, the other person in the GOP, uh, in the GOP um, was uh, someone endorsed by G- retiring GOP Governor Larry Hogan. So GOP, Republican Governor Hogan of Maryland, he endorses somebody else running to replace him as Republican governor. Trump endorses uh, Dan Cox, who won. And the reason I wanted to mention that is Larry Hogan has been one of these, you know, effete, uh, smug, superior, I'm so much smarter than the average idiot, and I hate Trump, and you should hate Trump too, you know, worked against Trump, worked against the Trump agenda. So, you know, Larry Hogan's been a total anti-Trump guy. He's a Republican governor in Maryland, which seems like it should be, shouldn't even belong in the same sentence, Republican governor in Maryland, because it's a very Democrat state, but they do have Republican governor there. And he, this guy Hogan, so it was, this, this primary battle was viewed a little bit, not just as a an assessment, you know, who's, you know, who are the people listening to? Are they listening more to Larry Hogan, the anti-Trump, or listening to Trump? And I think it's significant that Larry Cox won that nomination. Um, the guy that Hogan had endorsed, or actually the woman, I think it was, I don't know, anyway, named Kelly Schultz, uh, who'd been the Labor Secretary and Commerce Secretary. Um, anyway, this, the, the outcome was that the Trump-endorsed person won the Republican primary, and I think it's especially significant because this is a little bit of a, uh, a test, not just on which person, you know, the anti-Trump faction or the pro-Trump faction that Republicans are listening to, but in Maryland, it's a de- we used to live in Maryland. It's a Democrat state. My husband and I have been in Texas 22 years, but we moved here from the Washington, D.C. area. We lived in Maryland, uh, right outside of Washington, and uh, it's a very Democrat state. And so... I'm getting at, even in a moderate, moderate Republican state, I mean, a moderate, a state filled with moderate Republicans or not a whole lot of hard-hitting, you know, conservatives, uh, the guy Trump-backed won the primary. And I think it's really significant because uh, not just this one, but many other races around the country, the people trying to to piece together what's going to happen to America, you know, what what direction are we going in 2024, um, there are people who are... um, watching races like this and just trying to get a handle on are the people still with the Trump agenda? Whether they like Trump personally or not, are they with his agenda? Are they, are they with him? And, and race after race after race after race is showing that people are with the Trump agenda. I think that's going, to, that's going to happen in Arizona. You have a battle now. You had Trump has endorsed Carrie Lake, the very, very popular woman, Republican candidate for governor, and um, she's just a rock star. He, he's endorsed her, um, and Mike Pence came along and endorsed someone who's 20 points behind as just kind of a needle. I mean, that, that's among the reasons I don't particularly care for Pence, uh, you know, just kind of needling Trump. If Trump's for the, you know, Carrie Lake, yes, there was election fraud, yes, I'm going to stand up, yes, we're going to fight for truth, and then the, you know, the person who claims they never don't know what election fraud is, nothing, they think is nothing, uh, that's who Pence endorsed. So anyway, I think this Maryland gubernatorial primary, uh, it's just one of the pieces. It's not by itself you know, overwhelmingly significant, but it's one of the pieces along the way that people are trying to figure the mood of the electorate. The electorate wants Trump policies back. Whether they like Trump or not, they want Trump policies. They hate what's happening to our country under Biden. They hate it. They want it to stop. I wanted a quick little thing. I just find it entertaining because former New York City mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, um, who just, I mean, I, I think he holds a world record of some kind for just audacious, smug, condescension, uh, you know, just effete, liberal, full of himself, spouting every stupid liberal position. I mean, anyway, he's a former mayor of New York City, and um, he had announced, he was he originally announced he was going to run for governor um, in New York, and polling showed him, uh-uh, yeah, no one wants you. So then he decided he's going to run for Congress. So he announced that he's fooling around running for Congress, uh, and then he, and he's running in a very left-leaning district, uh, 10th Congressional District, um, in New York, and he's thinking maybe go to Congress next because he was term limited as mayor. But anyway, um, he looked at the polling, little look at the polling, and said, uh, "Can't do that either. Cannot do that either." So he's dropped out, announcing, agreeing, openly saying, "Yeah, the polling shows I can't win." Yeah, you think? And I just, I, I think there's, I don't know, I, I don't want to get overly hopeful, but I think the spirit of freedom is rising up in America. 
I think more and more Americans are recognizing how dangerous and lunatic the leftist agenda is in this country. They're watching what Biden's doing to this country. And I think that even, you know, certainly the, the core conservatives are going to stand up and whoever is a nominee in 2024 for president on the Republican side, you know, America's going to get behind them. And even if we have a bunch of primaries, I think there's a groundswell of we want our country back. We want freedom back. We want sovereignty back. We want borders back. We want we want capital, you know, capitalism and free markets. We want all this experimentation with social with um, socialism out. We want critical race theory to go away. Uh, we want all of this, you know, gender transitioning five-year-olds to go away. We want the, the sane, salt of the earth America back. I see one little plug on that point. I hear people on the conservative side say, "Well, you know, um, so and so is uber conservative," and and. You know, you never, ever, ever, ever hear a Democrat say, for example, AOC is hard left. You say, you might hear me say that, or a, a media person, but people don't, on the left, don't acknowledge how lunatic AOC and Bernie Sanders and many of the, all, all the leftist ilk in that party, which is most of the party, you never hear them called hard left. You never hear them called extremist or radical by their own party. On the conservative side, on the Republican side, we have allowed ourselves to have media descriptions, leftist descriptions of Main Street, apple pie, Main Street America, mainstream America ideas characterized by the left-wing media as extreme and hard right and radical right, and they're not. What I say on this show, what I stand for, what the Trump agenda is, is Main Street, mainstream apple pie America, and that is what the truth is, and we need to stop letting anyone on the left allow us to stop embracing their language and call anyone who just wants freedom back, just wants borders back, as somehow an extremist. We cannot play their game with them. Quick plug before we go to the end of the show today, we're going to go to why it matters to you in just a moment, but I want to mention to you that tomorrow... We have a great guest joining us uh, on our Thursday show named Dr. Peter Bregan, B-R-E-G-G-I-N Bregan, Dr. Peter Bregan. You don't want to miss that show. He's a He's just, he's a giant in the world of, he's a psychiatrist out of New York, uh, you know, very seasoned, has had many battles. He's now talking about the, the great increase in suicides among young people and the drugs that are unnecessary that are actually contributing to the problem. He's outspoken about COVID, wrote a great lengthy book on COVID. We're going to talk about that with him. So you don't want to miss tomorrow's show. And now I will tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today talking about Biden's climate change emergency farce, uh, Biden cabal pushing for executive order, declaring climate emergency, conferring vast rulemaking authority on unelected bureaucrats, de facto suspension, even elimination of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all in the name of a fabricated emergency. Biden cabal is acting in utter defiance of America and Americans and of climate science. SEC submission just last week by eminent climate scientists denying any climate emergency. Please embrace and remember that. They deny any climate emergency. SCOTUS, recent EPA decision, a warning shot on delegating too much power to unelected agencies. Proposed by an executive order would do exactly what the Supreme Court just said they shouldn't do. Americans are thoroughly fed up with an unelected installed cabal destroying America. Sri Lanka, Netherlands scenes may be coming to the USA soon. And we talk about Biden's election theft plan foiled. Biden cabal effort to federalize voter registration efforts through agencies met with... Oh, you know what? I skipped one, didn't I? No, I'm going to go ahead with this. Biden uh, cabal effort to federalize voter registration efforts through agencies met with a lawsuit infuriating, uh, inflating voter rolls has been demonstrated as a critical first step in election rigging. Lawsuit against Biden cabal sought discovery of all orders, communications to agencies. Biden cabal tried to ignore, defer any obligation to produce documents until after the November 2022 election. Wouldn't that have been convenient? Federal judge just ordered discovery that Biden cabal was ignoring and deferring. American resistance to Biden cabal is trying to use civil means to stop it. Still not clear if enough judges have the backbone to honor their oath to protect and defend the Constitution against this lawless cabal. Nothing the Biden cabal is doing is normal. 
Everything is in pursuit of radical leftism. None of it was voted for by the American people. And on whose side is America on and why it matters, primary election results pointing to an awakening, a rejecting of the ruling class. Former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio loses in a congressional Democrat primary in New York. Actually, he withdrew. Legacy media would have to have Americans believe he was a strong New York City mayor. New York Democrat voters apparently did not agree. Maryland GOP primary for governor. GOP anti-Trump incumbent Larry Hogan, who believes himself, he actually believes himself as a viable GOP presidential contender, endorsed a rhino to be his successor. Trump endorsed MAGA America First candidate Dan Cox. Cox won decisively. Beltway Uniparty stuck in the belief everything is about Trump personally. Americans are fed up with Uniparty elitism. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can